This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determines everything from the color of our eyes to the color of our hair to how our bodies respond to and metabolize medications and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini-series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct-to-consumer testing, the ethical principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by three guests, Dr. Stephanie Fabian, the medical director and professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. She's also the director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Women's Health and the medical director of the North American Menopause Society. Her clinical research interests include menopause and sexual health in women. Next, Dr. Jewel Kling, who's associate professor of medicine, the chair of the Women's Health of the Internal Medicine and associate chair of the Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity of the Department of Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. She also is involved in studying and clinical research interests in menopause, sexual health, and LGBT care. She too is involved in the North American Menopause Society and a certified menopause practitioner. And last but not least is Dr. Kajal Kantarsi, who is a professor of radiology in neuroradiology and has a specific interest in the changes that occur with regard to hormonal changes in imaging associated with perimenopause and menopausal women. I welcome all three of you today. And our topic today is, why does it matter? Genes, hormones, and women's health. Something near and dear to my heart, as well as many, many women. So it's a big topic and all of you are involved one way or another in menopausal health, but genes, and hormones, and the obvious thing is there's an X and a Y and XX health. So it's gotta be more than simply having two Xs versus an X and a Y. And I'd like for each of you to talk about what you do and how genomics matters and why are we so different and what you're doing and what's new and exciting. How can we help providers out there better understand why it's more than just simply XX versus XY with regard to women's health. Stephanie, do you want to kick us off? Wow, that's a broad topic. Well, and just thinking about this, we first need to understand the XX versus XY, and we can't just dismiss that, but you're right, it is so much more than that. It's really the impact of what the XX really does for women as opposed to men, and We have ovaries, which produce hormones, and those hormones have an impact on every tissue and organ system in the body. 
And let's just think about that for a minute. It's not just the ovaries. It's not just the breasts. It's not just the uterus. It really is every tissue and organ system in the body. So the brain is impacted. The bones are impacted. Everything is. And so we, when we think about this, we also have to consider that women have this significant variation in their hormones throughout their lifespan. They don't have the significant hormones before they go through puberty. And then they have this cycling throughout the reproductive life. And then it sort of declines into postmenopausal, which are almost unmeasurable levels after menopause. And all of that has an impact on the way we behave, the way we think, the way our heart functions, all of it. So it's kind of daunting to even think about. Um, that's a great setup, uh, Stephanie, and it is quite complex. And I think what adds to the complexity is really how little we know. The fact that as you set it up, Denise, sex, whether we're XX, XY, certainly makes a difference, right? But really, unfortunately, up until what the 1990s, most of medical science was based on studies almost exclusively done in males or in men. Um, and then just extrapolated to women, assuming that we're just a miniature version of a man. And it wasn't until the 1990s when the National Institute of Health formed the Office of Women's Health that we started seeing more momentum to really studying how sex as a biologic variable really impacts everything in medicine. You see that manifest in things like uh, medications. For example, Zolpidem is kind of a more famous example here that had been on the market for years. And then in 2012, the FDA realized, oh, hey, this medication gets processed differently in women than in men. And it's dangerous for women to take a 10 milligram dose and they should only be taking a five milligram dose. And we didn't know that because those initial studies were only done in men or males. So the more you start looking at the data uh, disaggregated by sex, so uh, for medications, for uh, diagnostics, for anything, I think the more differences we're seeing, and it also raises that question, how many more differences exist? Do we need to go back and kind of redo everything we know to see just by that basic biologic variable, what, whether you're male or female, if it's going to change how we treat you in medicine, like how you get through your, your medical care, how medications impact you. So I will continue and echo what Stephanie and Jill said about, you know, XX and XY is quite different, but how can we go beyond that as well? So women live different lifestyles and they have different exposures, different risk factors in the environment, in their homes, in their life as general. So the way women experience life is quite different from men. So that kind of uh, comes up in every research study we do to understand sex differences. So it's not just the XX and XY. There's also all these other factors that we need to consider. So it makes it really complex. We call the sex differences and then the experiences going to gender differences. And we have to parse out all of these effects to be able to understand the underlying uh, pathophysiology in diseases, how, how they're different in how they're expressed differently in women and men. Is it really related to the genes and chromosomes, hormones? lifestyle, health disparities. So these are really important topics when we investigate sex differences. Now, all of you are doing some research or have an interest in the menopausal woman 
or the perimenopausal women. And I'm a primary care doc. So I see a lot of women from the time that they're still having children to the time they enter menopause, really until later in life. And that's a very different experience for many, many women. Some pass through it and go, oh, quit having periods two years ago. Sorry, doc. And others seem to struggle into late life. And I'd like to find out from each of you what you have learned about the differences. And are there genetic differences between women that you have studied or genetic differences you have found within groups? And I know, Kajal, you've looked at some of the neuroimaging. What have you learned with your imaging studies about perimenopause and menopause? Because you know, I have some patients tell me they have a brain fog and others don't seem to be bothered. If I can start with you to say, what have we learned about menopause and how do women's brains work? And is it different for different women? And is this genetic? First of all, I would like to say that Alzheimer's disease and dementia is more common in women than men. We have a three to one ratio. So three times more common than women. So why is that? Of course, there's potentially sex differences, but where is this pathophysiology? Well, where is it coming from? Because menopause is the endocrine aging milestone for women. We looked into menopause to see if there are any clues we can get from the women's brains that is different from men during that perimenopausal period. And there is quite a bit of work across the nation on this. And I would like to point that out as well. We have found that women who undergo menopause and who receive hormone therapies may show a different aging process than women who do not receive hormone therapy. So replacing those hormones that are lost during menopause may have an influence on brain changes due to aging. Others have shown that as women go through menopause, their brains on imaging studies suggest that there are metabolic changes that is specific to that menopausal period. There is more research on this, which suggests that Alzheimer's pathology have a greater impact in women's cognitive function during the perimenopausal period than men. So this is really important because maybe this kind of a difference can explain the higher risk of women for Alzheimer's disease than men. And there is a certain risk gene for Alzheimer's disease. It's called APOE4 allele. And this is uh, not uncommon. We see that in almost 25% of the population. So women who possess this gene tend to show hallmarks of Alzheimer's pathology earlier than men. So men also have this risk factor, but it kind of pulls the age of Alzheimer's pathology changes earlier in women compared to men. So not just being women, but also having that risk gene additively increases the risk in women, which is really interesting. So there's this potentially hormonal and genetic modifiers of the risk coming together synergistically to increase the risk for aging and dementia of the brain. Interesting. Jewel? 
what have you, were you found in terms of some of the things you're doing as you've looked at menopause? I know that's one of your research interests or in your clinical care of patients. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you're bringing up this topic. And I've had the privilege and honor of working with both Stephanie and Kajal on different research studies, including through our database, the Data Registry on Experiences Aging and Menopause and Sexuality, rather, um, or DREAMS, which has given us the opportunity to evaluate different associations or outcomes that women may be experiencing. Most recently, we published a paper looking at sleep and sexual function and found women that have poor sleep quality are at a higher risk for female sexual dysfunction. So some really valuable things that can inform our clinical practice and our menopause uh, practice. And I'll, I'll let Stephanie talk about that more. One of the things that I've experienced both from a research and a clinical perspective is just the amount of kind of myths and maybe even stigma about um, menopause. Um, many of the myths are rooted in results from the 1990s with the Women's Health Initiative that the media kind of blew up saying that hormones are bad for women. And really, we know uh, now that it depends on when women start um, hormones. And overall, women under age 60 or within 10 years from menopause without absolute contraindications and who are suffering from symptoms of menopause can consider you know, hormone therapy in that timing window, or that, which is based on the kind of the timing hypothesis, that may actually lead to reduction in risk of some outcomes like cardiovascular disease. Importantly to us clinicians, it really helps women with their symptoms and the quality of life improvement is significant. So both looking at that from a research perspective, you know, we've looked at how well us as clinicians know that or how well residents are being trained in that area, which we still have a, a lot of work to do, but it's our opportunity to talk to our patients so that they have the right information so that they know, you know, that we can provide them with treatment that will really help their quality of life. Stephanie, Jewel mentioned something about the big collaborative work going on, sort of looking at women's health in sort of a multidisciplinary way. Do you want to comment on that or some of the other issues related to what's going on looking at menopause? Yeah, I think in general, um, we have a couple of very rich data sets here at Mayo Clinic that we're working on, and the DREAMS data set is one of them. But I would like to jump a little bit to talking about genetics and different experiences of menopause. And you, you mentioned that some women really don't have any symptoms and others really struggle. We are starting to find, and there is data out there, that not all women experience menopause in the same way and that the patterns of hot flashes actually vary significantly and that some patterns of hot flashes may be associated with greater cardiovascular risk. That is important because if we can identify those women in whom those vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes would portend greater cardiovascular risk, we could better address that risk and, and potentially mitigate it. So I think that's a really exciting area of work. We have done some investigation as to whether or not variation in genes that metabolize estrogen have some sort of influence over the experience of menopause and whether it influences the way women report hot flashes, but it's important to note that there's so many variables involved 
in terms of women's experience of menopause. And we know there are some racial and ethnic differences in the reporting of menopause symptoms that are quite interesting. For example, Black women and Latina women tend to have more hot flashes than white women. Asian women tend to have less. We don't know why that is and if it's a sociocultural thing to where they report symptoms less or more, or whether it's really a genetic variation. So I think we still have a lot to learn there. But we also know that there are different factors associated with hot flashes that may influence that as well. For example, obese women tend to report more hot flashes. We're also learning, and this is part of our data set from the DREAMS data set, that women with a history of migraine tend to report much more severe symptoms. And is that another marker of women who are going to have problems with cardiovascular risk down the line? It could be. We know migraine is also linked with greater cardiovascular risk. So there's a lot we don't know yet on how to tie this in, in terms of genetics versus lifestyle versus hormones versus some combination. But we are slowly starting to tease all these factors apart a bit. We talk about cancer risk and genetics of cancer risk and familial cancer syndromes. So as you're talking about this, strikes me that have we looked at familial risk of cardiovascular disease, premature cardiovascular disease, and risk of hot flashes? Because what you're talking about is vasomotor reactivity with migraines. In my day, you know, Prinz metal angina was the old thing we talked about. And I just wonder if there have been any studies looking at are women who have more prolonged hot flashes or report more hot flashes, do they in fact have more premature coronary disease in those families where we might see something associated with vasomotor reactivity that would clue us? I mean, I'm not aware of any specific gene identified for that. I mean, we've always talked about premature coronary disease as being a polygenomic disorder not tied to a specific gene like Alzheimer's or like BRCA1 or BRCA2. So I don't know if any of you can comment on that. You know, that's an interesting concept and I'll just make a a brief comment and then I'd, I'd be interested in what the others have to say. So flipping that a little bit, we know that the timing of menopause can influence symptoms. For example, those women who go through menopause early tend to have worse symptoms. Women go through early menopause for a large number of reasons. Some of it could be infectious. Some of it could be your ovaries were surgically removed. But a lot of women have this idiopathic category of, of why they go into early menopause. And we do think there's some genetics involved in that. Whether those genetics are also tied to cardiovascular risk, I don't think we are aware yet, but I think that's a really good point that you make. But we do know that the women who go through earlier are at a higher risk for heart disease if we don't give them those hormones back that they would have had until about the age of 50. Interested to hear what others have to say. So I would like to comment on the vascular reactivity issue. There is certainly a link between hot flashes and vascular reactivity. And we see that reflected in the brain. You mentioned the heart, but I'm going to add the brain. So in the brain, we have certain lesions that are linked to small vessel ischemic disease. We call them white matter hyperintensities. And we see that the volumes of these white matter hyperintense lesions to grow with aging. They tend to occur as early as the menopausal years, and they increase over time as women age. And we had seen a link between vascular reactivity and uh, these uh, white matter hyperintense lesions. Those who 
are less reactive tend to show higher rates of increase in white matter hyperintense lesions. And these lesions have also been linked to cognitive impairment down the road. Therefore, they're not benign lesions. I mean, they, they do mean something. So I think having a vascular impairment in the brain and vascular reactivity impairment that's linked to the vascular reactivity impairment during perimenopausal years may be one of the factors for women to be having a higher risk for cognitive impairment and dementia. You know, Kajal, I was just thinking about that while you said that. I was like, well, migraineurs also have those white matter hyperintensities. And I wonder if that's, again, that kind of ties us all back together and to say is that vascular reactivity also migraine, also the vasomotor symptoms, also seeing a greater risk of cognitive impairment and dementia. Yeah, Yeah, that's very interesting, Stephanie. I mean, we haven't ever studied migraines together with menopause and, you know, what we we see with vascular reactivity as well as hyperintensity. So it's kind of putting it all together together would be very, very interesting. (laughs) How many of us know that we have patients who suffer horribly from migraines. And we've attributed that to the vasomotor symptoms and the ebb and flow of hormones. And they hit menopause, they lose those fluxes, and their migraines go away. You know, I have many patients who their migraines improve when they hit menopause. And yet, I've never looked at their brains to say, oh, yeah, your migraines are better. But uh oh, you're in big trouble down the line. Same women who have greater hot flashes in menopause. So interesting. Jewel, any thoughts to add to the discussion of the white brain changes? Or I may forget this podcast by the end, by the way. So uh, please. We need to do an MRI of you. Is that what you're saying? Probably. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it's fascinating, the relationships and really illustrates how much more we still need to evaluate and study to best take care and individualize our care of our female patients. I think one of the things I was thinking when we were talking through this is just to highlight that when we're talking about these studies, these are all cisgender women. And that oftentimes comes up when we talk about sex and gender. Um, We're talking about, you know, cisgender women, meaning that they were sex assigned at birth as female and their gender identity is female um, as well. There's this whole other population of transgender people or gender diverse people that the research is even more sparingly. So looking at these relationships with hormones, especially somebody say that was born female identifies as male and is on testosterone. What does that mean for their heart and their brain, both in their younger years, but then as they age as well, we really don't know. I think it's exciting to think about all the information we still need to learn. Well, and I think that's really critical as we're starting to recognize that the transgender recognition is now being accepted in people who are younger, who are maybe just in puberty. And as they are starting to identify as transgender, and we're starting to use hormones in people who traditionally may not have been considered candidates. We don't know what does 40 years of estrogen therapy do to somebody who was born biologically a male, or even with regards to breast cancer risk, there is almost no data of any longitudinal basis in terms of those individuals. And it's going to be many years till we know what are the implications of, you know, appropriately based 
hormonal levels in transgender individuals, but that population is growing for both a transgender men and transgender women where we have manipulated hormones. And today, obviously, we're talking for the most part about cisgender women, I believe, because that's where we have data. The transgender women, we have almost no data. Kajal, I don't think you've, have you ever imaged a transgender woman in your studies? We don't have a study specifically on that, but I can tell you that there are some studies going on in Europe and U.S. There is, as you said, a lot of interest in what do the hormones do to the brain. Is it different from when you give it to give estrogen, for example, to a woman versus you give it to a man? I mean, men have estrogens too. They have estrogen receptors in the brain. So, but is it working the same way? Do you expect to see the same effect? Those are really, really important questions. And and it will need time. I mean, for long-term outcomes, particularly for aging research, you need decades to get answers to questions. So we are kind of at the beginning, uh, at the infancy of this research area. And I think we will learn more down the road. I would like to point out that imaging provides a window into what's happening in the brain, all the pathologies that are evolving before we see any clinical symptoms. So imaging is really a very rewarding tool to see the pathology evolving so that we can project what will happen in the future in terms of clinical outcomes. So I think imaging will be a great tool to investigate these questions. You know, and and so far, we've just been talking about XX versus XY and then transgender women, but there's a whole other category in there of receptor abnormalities for estrogen, et cetera. And I think we can already see some examples in familial pubertal delay where there's a, a genetic mutation. And that's actually how we've started to pin down where in the hypothalamus and which neurons are actually involved in generating hot flashes is because it was investigation of a couple of different families with familial pubertal delay. And they have subsequently sort of identified these neurokinin B and the, the candy neurons is what they're called in the brain as the generators of hot flashes. So it's because of some of these genetic mutations that we've been able to sort of pin down what is the anatomy of a hot flash. Well, and of course, just like the story with treatment of migraines, as these neural pathways are identified, these will be great opportunities for basically drug development in terms of management of, you know, how are we going to treat these symptoms? Well, that's exactly what's happened. So we have a whole new category of drugs called the NK3 inhibitors that are under development right now and will be hopefully the next treatment and actually a non-hormonal treatment uh, for vasomotor symptoms. Well, and that's critical because we've talked a lot about estrogen and menopause, but there is another category of patients, obviously, are, are patients who are young, who develop breast cancer, who end up early on on aromatase inhibitors and other anti-estrogen drugs who we put into, in essence, premature menopause and have them with prolonged estrogen blockade and where they may not lose their ovaries. So they have endogenous estrogen and yet we're blocking it. And where are we blocking it? And are we blocking it sufficiently? And so it becomes quite complex, I think, 
for our audience, I'm wondering, are there specific unique genomics that with regard to women, we know a little bit, and, and maybe you all want to talk a little bit about the BRCA genes. Are there things that we should know? Um, we haven't yet talked about BRCA in our mini-series. Angelina Jolie hit the big splash when she came out and had decided to have a mastectomy because her of her identified cancer risk. And, you know, we're not going to have a lot of time because that could be for podcasts in and of itself. But besides the better known BRCA genes, are there other genes that are really important for our audience to know about with regard to women's health? Yeah, I'm happy to, to take this one. And I'm so glad you've asked. You know, I think how this, this fits so perfectly in this idea of genomics and individualized medicine. And this really is where we're going in medicine, where we're getting down to the genetic level. I have the opportunity of working in our breast clinic as well. Um, and we talk a lot about testing for genes or identifying women that might be at high risk for breast cancer. And now we have a genetic panels that test up to like 84 different genes. And many of those are associated with a higher risk of breast or ovarian cancer, maybe not to the same degree as the BRCA1 and BRCA2, but some uh, like the PLB2, which is more similar to BRCA2 are quite high, but many of those other ones like ATM or CHECK2, these uh, do have um, anywhere from a, a 30 to 40% lifetime risk of breast cancer. So these women benefit from increased surveillance for breast cancer screening, as well as a discussion about those medications you mentioned already, the hormone blockade medications, the risk reducing medications like tamoxifen or the aromatase inhibitors, um, which have been shown in studies to reduce the risk of breast cancer, sometimes higher than 50% for women that are at um, greater than a 20% risk, lifetime risk of breast cancer. Those recommendations to offer the risk reducing medications are now part of the United States Preventative Service Task Force recommendations. And many of us clinicians working, you know, front lines maybe aren't uh, aware. So it's so important that we all know that we need to be asking those questions of our patients so we can identify high risk women, test them for those genes when it's you know, appropriate, and then offer the medication or the surveillance. There's so much overlap between menopause, hormone therapy, and uh, breast cancer risk that it does get quite complex. One scenario I'm thinking of are those BRCA patients that do decide to uh, undergo a risk-reducing oophorectomy um, earlier than the natural age of menopause. And you just heard us talk about the risks of early menopause in women that go through surgical menopause it turns out in those women that if they've not had breast cancer, then they can safely take hormone therapy until the average age of menopause to reduce those long-term healthcare risks associated with early surgical menopause. The more I do this, the more gray it, it seems to get and the more complex. And I hope with wonderful colleagues like the ones on this podcast that we're able to answer more of these questions to provide that individualized care um, to all our patients, you know, our cisgender women or transgender women, et cetera. You know, I long for the days of medical school where patients either had the disease or didn't. It was black <laughs> and white. And then you go into clinical medicine and everything is 256 shades of gray. Absolutely. Other comments about other risks or genetic risks that women should be aware of to add on to what Jules said? 
I have studied the estrogen metabolism and transport pathway genes for hormone therapy effects on the brain. Uh, the results are not out yet, but I think it's a really interesting hypothesis that certain genetic polymorphisms may influence the estrogen's effects on the brain. If they're in the metabolism and transport pathway, there's the SALTA1 gene and then SLCO1, B1 polymorphism as well that is implicated in the estrogen metabolism and transport pathway. And also it, they influence the severity of hot flashes in women. So the idea is whether uh, hormone therapies effects on the brain is modified by these genetic polymorphisms. And I think it's really important. I mean, if you are taking, taking the hormone therapies, but they're not really helping you, there may be a genetic underlying mechanism that's linked to the genes, of course. I really look forward to the results of that study. As do I. Stephanie, uh, things to add on? I think it's just so complicated. I, I would echo what the others have said. I think you've got the genetic variations. You've got also what are women doing in their lifestyle that's affecting the epigenetics of it. So the expression of their genes, um, that's a whole other layer that we haven't even really taken into account. And it actually is really sort of hard to put your finger on is how are the, the lifestyle changes, the woman's mood, you know, how are all of these things impacting the way her genes are expressed? Even her diet could have a significant impact. So thinking about the complexity is there is the factor of the genes. There is the factor of hormones, exogenous or endogenous. And then there's the, the impact of all the rest of what we do and what is influencing us uh, societally, um, how we express ourselves that's going to basically really come down to how disease is manifested, right? All complex. So are you saying it truly is clear as mud? It is clear as mud. <laughs> and I think our job as scientists is to try to filter through the sediment and try to make it a little more clear and, and tease out bits and pieces of it. And the good thing is that, you know, we work as a team here at Mayo and um, truly have you know, even what you witnessed here today, it was like, oh, we're putting things together by talking, right? And we, we should look at that. And oh, I didn't think of that. And that's what we do every day. And that's why I love this field. And it's wide open right now. And I think uh, we have a lot to learn yet. Well, I think that's one of the huge pluses. I think the collaborative nature, and I think it's sometimes just, oh, I didn't think of that. And what if we ask this question? Sometimes I think it's the sense of inquiry and the ability to ask a question and then to be able to access information. Imaging the brain, I mean, not only the static images, but the dynamic images, you know, the glucose uptake studies to say, where is the brain active? Where's the brain not active? You know, where's the brain blood flow going? I mean, I, I am not a radiologist, but I think there is some fascinating work that goes on in all of these fields and there's evolving data. And one of my good friends is Brad Erickson, who's the guru of artificial intelligence and the stuff that they're able to do now. I mean, we are on the cutting edge. I've been at this job for many, many years in primary care and it's a continuous learning environment, I think for myself, for my patients. And I love when my patients challenge me they bring in articles and say, what about this? And then I'm challenged to go out and find information. Uh, 
and it's not just the articles or the TV commercials for the latest and greatest supplement that's going to make their brain think so much better. I just tell them to go out and exercise. That's my usual pet answer. You'd be far better going out and taking a walk. Well, they're modifying their epigenetics then. So that's my, that's my hope is get more flow to the brain. <laughs> um, I'd like to go around and, and ask you each sort of to say if there was one message you could give to our audience that would be sort of what is the thing you would want them to know about women's health, genomics, that would be an important takeaway from today's discussion, that if nothing else, it, it stimulates them to think. Um, what would that be? Um, Stephanie, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I think women and clinicians need to keep asking, how is this different in women than men? So really in every aspect of medicine, as Jewel said earlier, we are just at the very beginning of being able to determine sex differences. And if we don't ask that question with everything, we should question everything. How is heart disease different in women than in men? How is the test that we do to diagnose the heart disease? Is it as effective in women as it is in men? The medication that you would use to treat the heart disease, does it work as well in women as in men? The majority of the drugs that have been pulled off the market in the last 20 years have been due to side effects in women because guess what? They weren't tested in women. So I think at every step, we need to be asking that question. Has this drug been tested? Has the test been looked at? Has the diagnosis of XYZ disease been looked at with, with a lens of sex and gender differences? Wonderful. Jewel, comments for our audience today? I 100% support and echo Stephanie's comments, and I'm glad that she said that, or I definitely would have said the same. So I'll take the opportunity to share the common things I hope clinicians hear when it comes to menopause. What I really kind of stated, stated earlier is that for women that are early in menopause, so less than age 60 or those uh, less than 10 years from their last menstrual cycle that are symptomatic with hot flashes and night sweats, unless they have absolute contraindications, which are, there's not a lot of absolute contraindications, but unless they do, that those women likely would benefit from hormone therapy or it could be considered for them. The other group of women that really should be on hormones are those that go through menopause early. So early would be less than 45 or premature less than 40, not just to treat symptoms of menopause, but to help reduce the long-term health consequences associated with um, early menopause. And they should be on hormone therapy until age 51. Kajal. Well, yes. I mean, my colleagues said the most important points, but I would like to add, talk about women's health in general. It's a very interdisciplinary field. We learn from each other. For sex differences, for example, what we see in the heart reflects on the brain. What we see as an endocrine problem reflects on the heart or the brain or the kidneys everywhere. So think of this as an interdisciplinary field, and we should learn from each other, work in teams and collaborate. Can I just add one thing? I've been struck recently by, say it's a kidney problem did we actually look at the difference between the men and the women? And Jewel and I have, have been reviewing a couple of large studies published in important journals that reported out big data on drugs, for example, and didn't and reported this many men and this many women, but didn't report the data disaggregated by sex. 
we will never know if there's a difference between what happens in men and women if we don't analyze the data by sex. So I would plead with all of our colleagues that, that no matter what field you're in, and Kajal just made this point, any field can be part of women's health um, just by making sure that you look at the difference between men and women. And so I would consider nephrology, that's women's health, if you just look at the sex differences. So I would plead with our colleagues to just look at it with that lens. So now I'm stimulated since my personal interest is pharmacogenomics because my background is pharmacology, wondering, has anybody ever looked at large pharmacogenomic studies or looking at polymorphisms for P450? Because, you know, we throw metoprolol at everybody. We throw other drugs at everybody and expect them to operate the same. I would betcha there are significant differences. Well, today we have been talking about genes in your health. Why does it matter? Genes, hormones, and women's health. And I want to thank all of you. I have been joined today by Dr. Stephanie Fabian, Dr. Jewel Kling, and Dr. Kajal Katarsi. It has been a great pleasure to have you all on our podcast series. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. See, your genes really do matter.